Today on Never Was a Gamer, do I really have to watch Advent Children? Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is the voice of the planet crying out in pain, Dimitri. Oh, my back. Oh, my Mako. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to be crying, I think, for a long time, like 10 years, 15 years before this all wraps up. We're at five since announcement. (laughs) Like, it's going to be a minute. But yeah, we're talking about Final Fantasy VII Remake. Yeah. Which is not an old game, not an old classic. But like we said last time, we're going to play it anyway. We may as well talk about it. And it is this chance for Michelle to experience for the first time a remake of a game she actually played the original of first. Finally, I will be pandered to. (laughs) Feels good. This is nice. Is this what you guys have been doing this whole time? I've been way too critical of this whole pandering remake thing. (laughs) So since you actually have a history with the original Final Fantasy (laughs) VII, maybe we can dig into that first. Um, Just talk about when you first encountered it. Because like you said last time, it wasn't when it actually came out. No, no, So you do kind of have this staggered history with it. Yeah, it's weird. So I have nostalgia, but nostalgia like to my late 20s. Um, So Final Fantasy VII was one of the first couple of games that I played when I started getting back into games as an adult. So um, I think the first one that I that I really got into was six and then seven, I think, was right after. So this was really early in my uh, like gamer renaissance or (laughs) whatever. So I, I came to it with some knowledge of not even JRPGs broadly, but at least a two Final Fantasies under my belt, being nine and six. And so, so much of my impression back then was shaped by those two experiences. But at the time, I sort of knew that it had this special status, um, even among Final Fantasy games, which were liked, but I didn't know why. Um, And one of the funny things is I remember you figuring out that, okay, so spoilers for this whole episode for the original Final Fantasy. We're just, we're probably going to hit on some later plot points from the original. Totally respect if you don't want to hear that, but this is, this is the warning. It is very fun to have to, I I mean, fun in quotation marks to have to have spoiler warnings for 20 year old games. But (laughs) that is another thing that comes with remakes, right? Where people get excited and people who have somehow had the blinders on or weren't even born yet. Yeah. And really didn't care about Final Fantasy VII now kind of get to experience that again. So yeah. yeah, we'll we'll do the spoiler warning. We don't want to spoil this if anybody hasn't actually played the original so you can feel what we felt. Back. Yeah. <laughs> actually, no, I had it spoiled for me. This was the, the most spoiled game. Yeah, I bet. I played it a year later and I, I knew everything. D- did you know everything or did you just know the one big thing? I knew the one big thing. Okay. I mean, yeah, I knew about Aerith dying. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we, um, we can just say it. We're like being cute about it even now. Yeah, I guess there's other things that would be spoilers. Like I didn't know that her soul came back and saved the planet. The whole rest of the story <laughs> that happens. But yeah, obviously the, the, the Aerith dying is the big one. And yeah, I knew that going in. So you you kind of went into it even more blind than I did. Yeah, I didn't know that. I, I just knew that people feel a special sort of way about this one. It's your gift to just not know things about pop culture that everybody else talks about to just tune it out if you don't if you don't care it, it's really a gift I'm honestly jeal- I'm, I'm honestly jealous i think it enhanced my experience of the original <laughs> truly 
So I remember picking this up and being kind of awed by um, this really interesting sort of transitional feeling game between the two Final Fantasies I knew, right? Because I feel like Seven in some ways is like the missing, especially graphical and visual leap between those two. And I really enjoyed it, but I still, it's interesting. This is where I think not having the context also becomes a challenge where I was like, oh, that was a good game, but in no way was I able to conceptualize or or really feel and understand what was so special about it when it came out. So what you're saying about the graphics, you're you're talking about how they hadn't really figured out the character models yet, I assume. Uh, but but you still have these like pre-rendered backgrounds and you still have these sort of um gestures at some of the beautiful environmental work that would come in later games like 8 and 9 and 10. Yeah, but the character models were pretty are, bad. Yeah, <laughs> like, they're a couple blocks. It is it, with- yeah, and <laughs> Even even back when I played it, it that that did I remember it did stand out that oh like Cloud in these cutscenes looks very different from Cloud when he's walking around. Yeah, which is like a little goofy, honestly. It's it's kind of endearing. <laughs> yeah, and it was then, and it, it's still endearing. But yeah, the Final Fantasy, especially the original seven, feels really tied into my uh, like rise back into this mm-hmm. community. Not just because of when I played the original, but because the the announcement of the remake mm-hmm. also actually is like kind of a, a marker in time for me, because I would say that's pretty much the exact moment that I started getting into games media, not just like games and like playing whatever was lying around that like you had or that I borrowed from people or whatever. Right. I remember that this was the time that kind of you were watching E3 and that caught your attention. I think it was my first E3. Um, or at least, yeah, the first, I think, or the first time that you're like, oh, like, clearly big things have happened. This yeah. is something worth watching. It's yeah. kind of fun to watch and then watch people react to things afterwards. Yeah, totally. Um, so that also feels like something that's really linked into my sort of introduction to this this space. Do you remember feeling any way whatsoever about the announcement of the remake? I remember the vicarious secondhand joy. I remember it looking good. Um, I remember... Like, I remember being impressed by what it looked like, but also remember at this time, like, I don't I don't have any framework for what it means for something to be brought back in this way. Like, yeah. And, and you have the <laughs> you have that nice um, naivete to you where you'd assume that the thing you're seeing in the teaser trailer is what it'll actually look like yeah. in the future, which shockingly kind of worked. Um, yeah. But yeah, we <laughs> there's no reason to assume that it would actually look that good. No, and uh, it was actually in an era where there was like a lot of criticism for CG trailers that had like no mm-hmm. relationship to what the game actually was. So yeah, I this was like uh, formative for me on a couple counts, but also in a funny way where I still feel like I didn't fully get the impact when I when I played it. Yeah, and I guess for me, maybe I was a bit more cynical. Again, like I was really excited to see it. Mm-hmm. And then the excitement almost immediately turns to, okay, well, what's this actually going to be? <laughs> right. Because this is, I mean, a remake of Final Fantasy VII had been rumored about for years, probably 10 years at that point, oh, maybe whoa. more. Um, but there are always, yeah, there are always talk of remaking it or doing a, a, a stronger remaster. Square had even teased a remake like a year prior and mm-hmm. then... They teased that there's going to be some Final Fantasy VII announcement, and then I think just announced that like the HD version was going to come on PC. Something really okay. stupid, <laughs> where they did not realize that the expectations they had set oh. were much higher than what the announcement. was They were going coming to be. with like something slightly better than a port, but not way better. It was, it was basically a port. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah, 
<laughs> so, yeah, so it always, anytime these things are announced, I think there's, yeah, there's the initial excitement and then there's the, okay, how are they going to mess this up? <laughs> oh, you know what else I remember? Um, I remember at the time hearing people like in games media talking and saying, yeah, but it's not going to come out for five years. And I remember naively thinking, oh, it's not going to be five years. That's ridiculous. Because I didn't know about Square Enix yet. <laughs> Being like, why would, they're not going to announce something and not bring it out for five years. Yeah, I think it's been revealed since that, like when they announced it, um, Nomura didn't even know that he was directing it. Yeah, I've heard that. And he was still working on Kingdom Hearts. Like it was, hopefully the next few don't take this long. Knock on. <laughs> knock on. No. Uh, but yeah, now it's now it's here. Mm-hmm. And before we get into it, maybe I just want to talk about what your experience is of playing this game that is a remake, your first remake where you know the original. So did that actually change your experience of it in any way? Yeah, um, for sure. It definitely, definitely did. First of all, I, I want to off the top say I loved this game. Um, I think I love it more than I would say that it's good. Um, <laughs> I mean, and here's here's the other thing is I think you've been really spoiled. Like, don't expect all the remakes in your No, I'm aware this of this. Good. I'm, a, I'm very, very aware of the fact that this is about as good as it gets probably in terms of these like remakes or reboots or whatever of franchise. Yeah, don't expect your Mass Effect remake in, oh, I in know. 15 years to be. I, I expect nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that that's the one that if that ever gets announced, you're going to have had the whole the whole right. remake experience of the, where you're going to be the cynical, like excited, but then cynical and it's announced. And yeah. Well, I, I had a mini version of this with Andromeda. <laughs> right. Like yeah. that in some ways could have been, if it worked, almost a sort of reboot of, mm-hmm. of an extension of anyway. We're not, listen, we're not here to talk about Mass Effect. <laughs> be the, maybe one day in the future, we'll do the Michelle Vents about Mass Effect episode. Oh my God. We should have a dedicated, spe- I'll have a few beers first and I'll tell you everything. <laughs> I'll tell you it all. Okay. Back to Final Fantasy. Yeah. So... Okay. I mean, I've joked earlier about, wow, being pandered to is kind of fun. But like, I, I I think like I was a pig rolling around in shit in this game. Like there's one of the, one of the things that I thought was most interesting about my experience of this is how immediately so much of my critical and like taste faculties Mm -hmm. went Mm -hmm. out the window. I felt myself Sometimes seeing things where I that I'm like objectively that was a bad decision that makes this game worse, but I'm just like wonderful. <laughs> like this game is bloated. It has a ton of stuff that could have been cut. I loved all of it. I never wanted this to end. I would have done four more chapters like that weird ghost graveyard that <laughs> contributed nothing besides being just kind of cool. A, what's a train graveyard? A ghost graveyard would be strange. Would like be a go- <laughs> would be a graveyard. <laughs> um, but. Yeah. So so with these moments, do you think that you would have felt that they were bloated or extra um, and unnecessary had you not played the original? Uh, great question. Um, this is another thing that surfaced for me is uh, how hard it is actually when you have that knowledge to put yourself in the position of someone who hasn't. Right. Because yeah. I genuinely don't know. Um, and that's that's my answer to a lot of questions mm-hmm. about like, what would this be like for... Mm-hmm. For someone who hasn't already played the original, I'm so curious to guess because there's there's some really interesting choices made in this that just make me so curious about what it would be like <laughs> to like does this map if it if you don't mm. already have Final Fantasy VII original under your belt? Yeah, the train graveyard part, the extended sewers part, like all of mm-hmm. these parts that could be seen as bloat that were literally like two or three screens yeah. 
in the original. Yeah. And for me, even even if I felt the bloat, yeah, it was kind of the same as like, oh, well, like it's still kind of amazing to see what this area looks like fleshed out. Yeah. I don't know if I'd have that patience if I didn't have the context of it originally being two screens, for example. Yeah. And I mean, I think with something like the the train graveyard, when I when I get to that point as someone who knows the original. Um, and had replayed it recently, we should we should. Mention. I replayed the first half of it recently. Mm-hmm. I want to get this out front because. One of the things that I've realized over this process is I do not remember the back, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. third of that game. You were like, well, yeah, because remember Barrett's backstory? And I'm like, no. <laughs> That's not the back third. That is uh, pretty much as soon as you leave Midgar, you learn that. Uh, I That's have be- forgotten. That's before you get to the gold saucer. <laughs> well. <laughs> Man, you're going to love the next few Yeah, I know. It's great. I'm going to relearn what these char- beloved characters are <laughs> basically about. Um from the perspective where I am, when I get to something like the train graveyard, I'm like, my I get to have the thought in my head like, oh, they are blowing this up and emphasizing it so much from what it was in the original. They must be going somewhere with this. Mm-hmm. And often, as in the case of like, you know, they bothered to actually give the other members of Avalanche character traits this time, which was a lovely treat. Sometimes they are going somewhere with that. And sometimes like the train graveyard they may not have been going anywhere with well, we, it. It just was cool. We don't know. So this is the thing. I would say the two two of the biggest spots where I feel like there was bloat, even though just as a reminder, my judgment is very suspect and I did not care about this whatsoever, were here. And some of what happens when you do the Jesse chapter, the, the mission to go to her house and then infiltrate a Shinra warehouse to steal a thing. I was trying to think, is that like the first instance of something that's completely not in the original? And I guess you, there's some stuff around um, Sector Seven that is that is a bit different. Yeah, yeah. But I would say that's that's feels the most spun out of whole cloth. Okay. That the Chadley stuff is another uh, pretty significant. Right. <laughs> Chadley's not in the original. Um, so in that chapter, one of the things that comes up, which is my best guess as to how it is actually going to pay off in some way, is kind of an offhand comment about Jesse thinking that her dad, who's in a coma. Or, or Mako poisoning something is like trapped between this world and the life stream and that there's a way to bring him back. And so between that and the sort of stuff about afterlife or like what a ghost is in this world mm. where there's like Mako and what is the life cycle on this planet there, they may be planning to pick that up later. I'll leave that open and possible mm-hmm. in this game. It did not get picked up and it was just two long chapters that I had a fun time with. And had no impact on the rest of the game. <laughs> That's it. There's there's so many things that are from slightly different to very different. Mm-hmm. And we don't know if there's just going to be loose ends that are not picked up on or if that'll all be tied off in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the next game, maybe the next whoever knows how many games. <laughs> but before we start prognosticating about the future, maybe let's go back and try to articulate our first impressions of this game. Sure. So, you, I mean, we turn the game on and you get the Final Fantasy VII logo and then the iconic prelude music mm-hmm. plays and you kind of remember everything that you love about Final Fantasy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, beyond that, what were your first initial thoughts of this game? One of my first big thoughts about this game is I am concerned that this is going to gaslight people into thinking that the original Final Fantasy VII was better than it is. This was your initial thought. This is one of the first things that occurred to me is I was like, oh, 
Okay, and one of the big places where I think this shows up is in the character work and writing. I think this game puts a lot of time and attention and care into the characterization of both your main party and also a lot of the peripheral characters. And honestly, a lot of that is just not there in the original. I like the original team, but a lot of them are more that JRPG thing where uh, their character is their scenario or their backstory more mm-hmm. than like a really well-expressed individual personality. And I mean, in the original, your team, like if you're talking about Jesse Biggs and Wedge, they don't really even have a backstory. Yeah, there's nothing. They're just um, the other guys. But yeah, like their banter is is from the beginning shows you that something's going to be different with them and how, yeah. they're, how they're characterized. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean... um, Aerith's character has come a long way, mm-hmm. I'll say. They they made uh, a really good choice to give her a specific personality. <laughs> um, yeah, and again, I guess, especially with Aerith, I hear that a lot of that personality was in the original Japanese and was lost in translation. Mm, interesting. But yeah, I, I mean, that's kind of irrelevant for the English language version. So yeah. at least we have that back. New to us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I just, I feel As like... As is the name Aerith. Yeah, it was it was Eris in the yeah yeah weird. Um, so I I feel like now people are going to read some of those personality <laughs> traits into mm. the original and some of that nuance into the original. And like the original is a great game. This stuff is not there, <laughs> straight up. <laughs> um, so I mean, it's to this game's strength. Uh, I just I I found it funny thinking like this is gonna cloud so much of how oh. that wasn't on purpose. You know that wasn't on purpose. I hate puns. This is gonna cloud so much of how people. <laughs> this is gonna color so much of. This is gonna make a materia difference in how people look at the original going forward in a way that I think is gonna be really hard to take back. Um, <laughs> like I think this is always going to be part of how we read the original at this point. Yeah, the the status of the original is something I'm very curious about kind of moving mm-hmm. forward. But it's also something that I've been thinking about since this game was announced. For me, the big question was, how could this game possibly recapture the significance of the original? Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's impossible because that game really shaped the trajectory of the game industry moving forward. So how so I feel like this is a piece that I actually don't have even now. You might have heard of this as you kind of listen to other people talk because this is the game that marked the split of Square as a company affiliated with Nintendo and Nintendo consoles. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was their kind of abandonment of Nintendo mm. to work with Sony, which like and even still is talked about like top 10 anime betrayal. No, no. Oh, that yeah. was juicy. Like a major historical moment that kind of came out of the blue, at least to people not on the inside. You just kind of opened a magazine and then realized that, oh, like the seventh entry in this series is not going to be on a Nintendo console, which was kind of mind blowing and in a lot of ways shifted the focus um, or put the focus on the PlayStation, at, le- at least in Japan, because um, that was one big move that really made the the PlayStation kind of the place to go for JRPGs. And like a viable competitor to other... And and yeah, in, in this year, more so than a viable competitor, like getting Final Fantasy VII was the first nail in the coffin of the N64 in Japan, at hmm. least in relation to the power of the PlayStation 1. Do we know what happened? Well, it's just they couldn't, Final Fantasy VII wouldn't really be possible on the N64. They okay. needed CD storage oh, got it. just okay. um, for the music and for the pre-rendered backgrounds and for the cinematic sequences that were kind of so integral. Right. That wouldn't be possible on the N64. So they just decided to go full They're on like, with, we gotta go. with Sony. And yeah, and it was kind of this major tipping point where 
think a lot of people started seeing the PlayStation now, at least in Japan, as, as something that could be a viable product moving forward. Hmm. And then, I mean, this is also the game that taught companies that JRPGs could sell well in the West, because up until this point, they really didn't. And then partially because of cinematic sequences and like almost CD quality music, that kind of thing, like that kind of spectacle that could attract people who might have dismissed um, 16-bit JRPGs as maybe being too childish or too quote-unquote Japanese okay, or just like not for them. This brought a whole new audience. Hmm. Again, like it has all this baggage coming in. Plus, it was kind of a, a remarkable game for the time. So what could this game possibly do to even approach that? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to suggest that it's going to change the industry in any yeah. way moving forward. We're almost um, past the case where one game could do something like that, yeah. right? But I still find myself incredibly impressed by what they were able to pull off. Mm-hmm. In all the other ways, it does recapture the same sense of wonder as the original did. It still feels massive. Mm-hmm. The music is still surprising and incredible, even though I know all the melodies. Like truly beautiful, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't been impressed by a cutscene mm-hmm. in years. Yeah. And like when this game came out, like a cutscene was like a treat. Right. And I haven't felt that in at least 10 years. <laughs> and in this game, it's like, oh, the cutscenes are treats again. Like I look forward to a cutscene, which yeah. I haven't felt that in so, so long. <laughs> Because a lot of them are in engine cutscenes, but then there's that actual CG cutscene when you're in like the planetarium thing in the museum. Mm -hmm. And that's incredible. Yeah. I like I was just delighted by watching that. I I, usually I'm bored with cutscenes. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, like it nailed all of the things that the original did for me again, which Mm -hmm. I thought was impossible. Yeah. It's funny to hear you say this because I feel like at more than one moment when playing this, I turned to you and was like, I feel like I'm playing a next gen game. Like I had this sort of felt uh, experience of this being something bigger and something uh, like new and more impactful than even things I'm, you know, I'm used to good PlayStation 4 games at this Mm -hmm. point, right? So for me, it was this moment at the beginning. Okay, wait, let me set this up. So the first sequence, kind of the the first bombing mission is very much almost copy and paste from the original. Like it's Mm -hmm. very much just giving you what you remember. Uh, But then you end up in the slums. Mm Mm-hmm. The slums is so much bigger and so much more alive. Yeah. And then you you kind of get there at night and then the morning you walk out and it's daylight. and You've never seen Midgar really in the daylight. Mm-hmm. And yeah, looking up and seeing the plates. Incredible. Yeah, that was actually I just kind of like tilted the camera up and just like me too. Looked at that. Yeah. Just being able to have that perspective from the ground and feeling like you're actually in the slums. Even just that camera angle shift. Yeah. Was so meaningful. Um And multiple other times over the course of the game, particularly like um, at one point when you're climbing up and you're sort of under the plate and you have to turn off a bunch of lights. There's points when you get a sort of different vantage, but that has the same sort of scale. Like Mm -hmm. in those moments, I often also looked around and like looked down at the slums and like looked like that whole distinctive horizon is really special in this game. Another thing that I was kind of immediately impressed by and then increasingly impressed by as the game continued is how the game retained so much of like the goofy shit mm-hmm. from the original, like from enemy design to plot beats, like so much stuff that you can get away with in the original because you're dealing in a more abstract, mm-hmm. both kind of visually and in terms of how the narrative works. Like everything is a bit more abstract, so you can get away with okay, hedgehog yeah. pie as a bad as a yeah, and enemy. Like, and the enemies are so disconnected because they're they're the random battles, like they're not actually living on the map. Mm-hmm. So, I can believe that I'm going to fight a house. Like, right. it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and 
you can't do that in this game and they realized that but they they didn't sacrifice all this goofy stuff instead they just grounded it in this world Mm -hmm. and fleshed out the world to the point where it could actually accommodate that stuff yeah where it still fit i mean it doesn't take a lot to get me on board with this kind of stuff but even just those rumors of the secret shinra lab below the slums that's then paid off at the end even just lines like that do so much to establish this world and center me in this world. So by the time you do get to that, like the Hell House fight yeah. in the Coliseum, you're on the one hand amazed that it's there, but it also kind of makes sense at that point within the yeah. world. <laughs> you're like, like, yeah, like, yeah, like, of course this house would exist right. in this world. Right. It's like you have, they've somehow managed to find the sweet spot between some of that bigness of JRPGs mm-hmm. that I talked about with a world that has to feel like it could exist, at least in this sort of... Uh, like urban fantasy almost sort of conceit. Mm-hmm. And and maybe that goes back to fleshing everything out and the stuff that maybe felt bloated mm-hmm. is also the stuff that supported this. Like if I'm playing two screens of a train graveyard, like a biker ghost is weird. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm playing two hours of a train graveyard, I'm so sucked into that train graveyard yeah. that of course there's a biker ghost that yeah. I have to fight. And yeah, it's you get you start to accept the the biker ghost. It yeah. makes sense at that point. You're like, uh-huh. And this is the next step. Yeah, a thing that I've thought a lot about with this remake is especially some of the most talked about sequences, like the Honeybee Inn sequence, for example, is uh, what this feels the most like to me is reading a pretty well-written fan fiction. (laughs) So there was a whole, particularly in like a certain era, there was a whole subgenre of fan fiction that was basically around games that was basically telling the story of what happens in the game, but in like a novel format, <laughs> mm. like almost the non-professional novelization mm. of games. And so much of what this game wants to pay attention to and wants to give loving detail to and uh, take some liberties with and expand on has the feel of like one of those old, um, this is what Cloud was thinking in his head as he goes through this mm-hmm. story. And that sort of, That feels like the perspective that's brought to so many of the characters and the character beats. And there's also a pulpy self-indulgence. And I don't say that as really a negative, um, especially around some of those sort of campy or larger than life moments that feel like they are coming from the same place as someone who played this game a bunch and loved it so much that they had to retell some element of it from their own lens with that sort of uh, expansive love that goes into sort of fan works and just so many little things like this game is so obsessed with uh, living in the details of this world. Like I have a question for you. What do you think Mako smells like? Did you notice how many times they ask you to smell the Mako? This is probably because I live near this small city with a paper mill. (laughs) I kind of imagine that it has that, which is which has since been torn down, but like for most of my life, this city just stunk like yeah. paper factory. Okay, I imagine that Midgar smells like this town. No, not Midgar. I'm asking about Mako. When every time well, I assume that Midgar smells like Mako. So just like in this town, like you could not avoid 
the stench of the paper mill. No matter where you went, mm. it was just wafting and you'd get this pungent sulfuric paper mill smell. Um, and then obviously when you're closer, it's really strong. Right. But it, the city was kind of defined by that smell. Hmm. That's interesting. And I imagine the Midgar is very much defined by a Mako smell. Right. Yeah. One of the details that I loved in this is that um, particularly Barrett, every time they're going into the sort of Mako storage chambers, which is where they plant the bombs in both of the bombing runs, um, Barrett makes a really emphatic point of like, smell the Mako. Like it reeks of it in here. Like you smell that, it's Mako. And this is the fact that the first time this came up immediately, I felt like I had such a specific idea of what Mako would smell like. They don't say what it smells like. That's not defined. What do you, so what do you think it smells like? I think it smells like, um, like a peat smell of like overripe, Right, right at the at the the border between overripeness and decay, with a mossy, really um, sort of herbal start of decay smell. That's what mm. that's what oh, came okay. to me immediately. Like almost like a really not like a scotch, but like you know that really peaty smell that's in some mm. scotches. And I think like the kind of thought to think that Mako would have a smell. And that people would know what it smells like. And also that you would say, can you smell that? And leave the space and trust that so many people who are playing it will immediately have their own vivid idea of what that is. That's such a fan fiction impulse. It's so weird that you say this because it is so many of the people who worked on the original working on this. That's so interesting. To then say that they're writing their own fan fiction is, I don't know. That's so interesting. That. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I see so many of those same uh, impulses playing out. Like, do you not think that this is the world that they, that some of them had envisioned initially? And then, I mean, is fleshed out further um, in yeah. some other iterations? Maybe. I mean, I don't know to what extent someone who created something more than 20 years ago and has had to live with everything people have said and written about it and your own thoughts as they evolve over time. I Part of me questions how much those same people actually have access to like what they were thinking in the moment. I think um, creators' relationships with their own work changes. Um, and I don't know to what extent this had like a huge like design bible or something. Right. Because I know, right, like some projects, some developers or creators keep their design bible of mm -hmm. so many details that never make it in, but it's just to keep a consistency of the world. Right. I have no idea if that was. I'll have to go back and read. There's this huge oral history that I think Polygon did hmm. of Final Fantasy VII a few years ago that I think they, it, like it's so long they kind of put out a book of it. Hmm. Maybe it's in there somewhere. Neat. I mean, I, I don't I don't think we need to like uh, prescribe whether like, of course, this is an authoritative uh, telling of of what this world is and, and this game. I just want to raise the the patterns that I felt um, and a, a sort of um, uh, love for details of this world that is uh, generative and alive mm -hmm. and creative and not just about capturing and storing and i know this so it has mm -hmm. to be in here it's not an indexical love of what is in the mm -hmm. original mm -hmm. it's a creative generative one. Oh, that's interesting because i think we'll talk a bit more about fans later towards the end mm -hmm. but for now let's take a quick break
So we've talked about the world and how the game sets up the story and how that works in relation to the original. But now I think it's time to talk about the battle system. So did you like what they did with the original turn-based active time battle or ATB battle system? This is the most fun I have had doing combat in a Final Fantasy game in a minute. I, I mean, I played Final Fantasy 15. I haven't got into 14 um, or, or the MMO any of those. Stuff, yeah, yeah, the MMOs. I, I don't MMO generally. Um, 15, I enjoyed the combat fine, but this is so quick and kinetic and I love how it... The, um, you know, your your regular attacks do something, but really what you're living for are those uh, those ATB attacks. So that so that's the thing. It's quick and kinetic, which is what they're going for in 15. Mm-hmm. Really what they've been going for ever since after 10 and mm-hmm. even with 10. So like 12 had more of an MMO type system and then 15 has pretty much like something inspired by action games. Mm-hmm. Here, I think they nailed it because this is this is turn based combat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. just disguised as action, right? It like gives you the turn-based combat, but shows you on the screen what you would imagine the battle would actually be like mm-hmm. in seven, for example. Yeah. And they, yeah, and I think they nailed that. I didn't ever think that would be possible. Yeah. And one of the things I was kind of worried about with JRPGs in general is that, oh, we're just kind of moving towards this more action-y, full action, full action combat system, except in things like Okay, like Persona's keeping it kind of yeah. quote unquote pure yeah. in terms of turn based. But when I saw the remake shown off for the first few times, I was kind of worried. It's like, oh, they've they've just gone back. They're just doing It'll be the fifteen system. It'll be the fifteen yeah. system. It'll or it'll be Kingdom Hearts. Yeah. But no, like it's it's turn based combat. Yeah. It's great. Also, I think they have done such a good job of making different fighters feel different. Mm-hmm. Um, switching between Cloud and Barrett. And even Barrett versus Aerith being the two sort of more ranged people, um, there there is that expressiveness of uh, personality coming through in combat, which is something that you and I talked about last episode that we love. Yeah. And so this is the other thing I was so excited about, because this is one of the games where in the original, because the materia system is so flexible and any character can pretty much do any spell mm-hmm. and equip any materia at any time, I was worried that, yeah, the characters would just be kind of carbon copies of each other and there'd yeah. be nothing unique about them. But but yeah, they are their moves reflect their personality. Yeah. I love how heavy the buster sword feels. Mm-hmm. Like it even when you use it outside of combat, it's like this big whoa, like momentum driven thing. It's great. Okay, so here's something I, I want to ask you about with the since you mentioned the buster sword cuz I remember <laughs> when when this game was even when it was announced. Yeah. You had mentioned that you hope that you get to keep the buster sword for the whole game cuz it would make no sense to swap out for lesser swords or swords that look different because the buster sword is so iconic yes i feel this strongly i hate when a character has an iconic mm -hmm. weapon that isn't the weapon that is going to be their final most important weapon for the game yeah and this this is a trope that we didn't talk about last episode but that i thought of after and yeah and it happens all the time like in chrono trigger with frog you're do the whole quest to build the massive moon yeah and then, like, I think it becomes powerful. It can become the most powerful again by the end. But it's like, okay, you do this whole quest, later. and then like, <laughs> you go to this mom and pop shop yeah. in the in the town next door, and he has this dude has something more powerful for two hundred bucks. Yeah, that you're like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, like that kind of stuff drives me insane. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was kind of disappointed when I saw that you they'd be swapping out. So, what did you what did you make of that in the end? So I actually ended up really liking it. 
Um, the reason why I really liked it and also broke what I had vowed in the start, which was to keep the Buster Sword the entire game. Which you could technically do. You and could. I think you could beat the game like that, no problem. And this is part of why I actually really liked it. You viably could play with the Buster Sword the whole time. Mm-hmm. You get other weapons, but they don't... It's not the old JRPG thing where like... You have this weapon, and then the next weapon that's available to you is eight attack stronger, and then the next one is five attack stronger than that. And there's this clear escalation of, you know, you have to switch mm-hmm. to the next one to stay competitive. This one, you have, you know, I would argue there's some weapons that are objectively probably among the stronger ones, mm-hmm. but you have ones that are more magic oriented. You have ones that have all kinds of uh, niche abilities that can be triggered contextually. You have just different loadouts basically that you can choose between. And an aesthetic thing that I appreciate is they all kind of basically look like the Buster Sword. Like they all have a similar, they're the same size. Mm-hmm. They're, they fit and move in the same way on Cloud's back. There's a bit of that iconicness still carried through. You never feel like he's just using a sword. Yeah, I don't know who would have bought these things if he didn't show up. Yeah. It's like nobody else in town <laughs> No one has... is walking around with this. <laughs> or like arm guns that you can rip, strap on. Like, yeah, there's, that... no, there's no other like clear like stone cold cyborgs really in <laughs> yeah. this. <laughs> just Barrett. Like, we're looking for a guy with a gun on his arm. I don't know, man. Could be anyone. <laughs> Yeah, I, like I, they're almost playful with that by how yeah. much your characters stand out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and they didn't need to do it because everybody knows, I think, by now who your party is here. But in terms of the thing I said last time where it's like, they're, you know who the party members are going to be because they're designed in a very specific way. Yeah. And nobody else is designed in that way in this yeah, game. Yeah, that's, that's active um, here. But yeah, any, anything else to say about the about the battle system? Again, like I, I just can't say enough. Like, like you were saying, like how the ATB moves really are the moves that you're building towards so that just like doing the general kind of hack and slash combat that's really just passing the time like that is the that is the moment between your atv meter filling up in seven like in the original seven you know this is also the thing that i like from the chrono cross battle system Mm. you do your normal attacks to fill up Mm -hmm. your stamina gauge so that you can unleash your big special attacks yeah like i just can't get over how much they nailed transitioning turn-based combat into into this yeah. kind of spectacular active style it's yeah it didn't think it could be done did you get sick of the upgrade menus because you upgrade you get basically experience points for every weapon as mm-hmm. well in this game that you can apply in all kinds of different ways a, a little bit um by the end i was just letting it do it auto oh really yeah i wasn't i wasn't kind of doing it on my own. I know you love sphere grid type stuff. So Hell yeah. <laughs> kind of scratch the sphere grid itch. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I'll talk a little later about playing on New Game Plus, but one of the best things was finally getting to the point where it was worth it to have Chadley erase my points allocations and just start over with mm-hmm. like all of your options opened up and just optimize um, your loadout. I love that shit. <laughs> And you're leveling up materia too, which is in the original, which is really fun. Right. Yeah. They definitely, they did carry that over. And, and you kind of, and like when I ended, I don't know if it was the same for you and maybe because you've gone into new game plus you've dug into this more, but there was so much more leveling to do with your materia. Yeah. Um, especially a bunch of them that have super powerful final mm-hmm. forms. Um, you're nowhere near by the end, um, including your revival spell, which is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, I, which I kind of like that you get to the end 
And unless you did a ton of grinding, you still feel like there's somewhere for you to go. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things I worry about in, in terms of how they've kind of split this game up is that each game now has to have the has to make you feel that growth arc again and again from the beginning to the right. end. Like I was, to be honest, kind of disappointed that I had my August spells in this game. Yeah, yeah, fair. Um, like and- so, yeah, so right there's the the Final Fantasy has the like the nomenclature of the spells. It goes from like the name, so like fire, and then fira, and then firaga is the so strongest. Aren't familiar, yeah. yeah. So like the the August spells are the the max out versions of your basic spells the elemental ones um and it's interesting that that happens and yet you don't really get new limit breaks yeah maybe that's how you'll upgrade in the future because in this one you really just get the the one the one extra so you have two at the end instead of your whole suite of limits i did not have two at the end i had one for each character at the end i was just about to mention this that it's weird you don't get more limit breaks oh you do it's okay so this is a bit actually opaque um, in the game, but you get them. I th- I think if I remember correctly, it's by doing some things at the Coliseum. You get those books. You okay. can win these books, and then if and they teach you your extra limit break per character. Is it like extra stuff at the Coliseum, not the main quest? It's it's some of the extra stuff, but I didn't have to do many extra fights to get them. Oh, it's very likely that you have them, and you just didn't realize what you have. So, Sick. <laughs> so no, like. And you're, especially because you're playing on hard, like cloud second limit break is really powerful. Yeah, I'm going to need that. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah. No, I, he still has cross slash. I'm like, cross play... slash is good too. It's fine. But it's if there's ascension. another one, ascension. Ascension, yeah. Okay. That sounds better. Maybe Michelle can go and run and get these limit breaks. We'll take our own <laughs> break. And uh, we'll be right back to dig in a bit more into this game. <laughs> And we're back. And now I think we're going to dig in a little bit more into some of the big picture decisions that were made for this game mm-hmm. and see what we thought about them and maybe where we think this game might be going moving forward or where this series now might be going moving forward. So the first big one, and that apparently some people were actually surprised about when they got this game. <laughs> My brother. <laughs> <laughs> was that this This is only a bit of the game. This is only the Midgar section. Yeah. A section that I recently replayed just to see how long it would take. It is even less of the game than I thought it was. I'm going to guess four hours, five hours. I think five hours if you're really leisurely. Okay. I think you can get through the Midgard section probably in about three hours. Yeah. Um, if, if you wanted to. And then so to blow that up to this 30 hour experience is pretty ambitious. Mm-hmm. And as we said, we do think there is a bit of filler. But overall, what did you what did you make of this decision? And how did this decision make you approach what this game is actually doing or what it's about differently? I think that one of the important things that happens in this remake is that there are more people in Midgar, and by that I mean in the world of this game, than there are in the original. Um, there's more than just the main cast. There's more than just the people who are being the most direct actors on this world. Mm-hmm. Um, people live in the slums in this game, I think, in a way that they don't in 
in the original. It's not just a matter of there being, you know, the three vendors that you can use in Sector 7 plus two other guys who are just standing around. Like, at all moments in this game, there is ambient... Anytime you're out in the slums or in Midgar, there's ambient conversation around you where people are talking often about what's going on in the city. And and I mean, that's the thing. We mentioned this earlier, but yeah, like you are living in Midgar as well in a, in a way that is different from in mm-hmm. the original. Just by bringing the camera down, not having that yeah. over-the-top perspective, you're really just kind of among the crowd so frequently. Totally. Uh, and a thing that I really appreciate about this game, um, and I think is one of its strengths, is it doesn't overwhelmingly show you that most of the people in Midgar are on your side. Mm. Um, I I sort of would have expected uh, a game like this, you know, from a AAA developer to sort of have a, you know, people on top of the plate don't get it, but people in the slums all like understand the structure. Like, mm-hmm. I think there's, I think it would be really easy and tempting to sort of uh, romanticize the poverty elements of this, which the game does in some places. We have an awfully sweet orphanage, but like for the most part, people are talking about being scared. They're talking about there being bombings. They're talking about, um, okay, maybe Mako is, you know, problematic, but like also we have to live. Like, what are we mm-hmm. supposed to do? Overwhelmingly, there's very, very few ambient voices in the game that are really saying like, yeah, stick it to Shinra. Um, And I think that really fundamentally changes what it feels like to be in Avalanche. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, mean, even as a player, so kind of divorced from the the characters. And and again, right, this is one of the things that I like about JRPGs versus um, more Western RPGs where you really have to inhabit the character that you can kind of take yourself out and, and kind of assess the situation as the spectator. There were definitely moments that I did not feel in the original where Barrett would say something or Jesse would say something. And I'm like, oh, like you sound like a, a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Like you sound like you're off your rocker. Yeah. And that you court like that. You're the like this is like cliche, like yeah, you're yeah. the bad guys. But like <laughs> but I didn't feel that in the original. Mm-hmm. And like, But in this one, it's like, oh, like if I didn't know where this story was going and I heard you saying this on the streets, I'd be like, oh, like you've you've been reading the weird yeah. like alternate media. Like you're not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think one, an interesting thing, an interesting choice in this, and I, I man, I wish uh, we could talk to someone who hasn't played the original and doesn't know anything about it. This game honestly waits a long time to give you, the player, evidence that Barrett is right. Um, mm-hmm. Like it, in terms of how destructive Mako is to the planet, how nefarious Shinra is. I mean, you can kind of like feel big corporation vibe. Like this mm. is tropey enough that but you can kind of get then, it. I wonder if if they didn't make Hojo so gross yeah. and despicable. I don't even know. I, I That might have been the tipping point for me. It's just like, okay, they made like Hojo is a character that's really more fleshed out in this one. And yeah. he's just he, he's just like oozes evil. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you need kind of that. Mm-hmm. As the, as kind of the undercurrent of Shinra, because like I don't even know if I'd feel that with just President Shinra. Oh, for sure, no, he's just a corporate guy yeah. at that point, which is like fine, that's something. But that I don't know if I if I was completely new to this, mm-hmm. if that would get me enough to like blowing up reactors mm-hmm. that kill lots of people um, and have all these these side effects. Um, I mean, even even I think a lot of Hojo is more an argument about. Shinra as an organization than about the fundamental like Bear doesn't just hate Shinra. He hates he's very much about 
the like ecological impact of draining the planet, mm-hmm. right? And you don't really get confirmation that that is as bad as he is mm-hmm. interpreting it until you get to the history of the Cetra and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's interesting how long this game lets you hang with Barrett saying this extreme shit, you seeing very firsthand um, the the bystander damage of what Avalanche is doing, but still asking you to be on their side, even in the face of um, public opinion, all this different stuff. Um, it's which that's an interesting position because i think even in a lot of contemporary media depictions of like revolutionaries or these sorts of extreme moments of political turmoil i think often media wants to play it safe and have most of the oppressed people basically agree with Mm -hmm. the with the people who are going to take action like on their behalf Mm -hmm. and i think a Mm -hmm. real thing that lots of people with you know uh uncommon politics feel is that you are trying to fight for something that is in the best interest of a world that doesn't want that thing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it leans into that. Uh, and I, I just think that's really interesting and surprising uh, in 2020 and and where we are. Yeah. It w- yeah. I, I agree that it was refreshing to write all of these characters in Midgar as though they don't have the benefit of hindsight of what mm-hmm. will happen in the future. But it's interesting is that for a lot of the players who who are playing this for the second time we do yeah or maybe we don't (laughs) yeah maybe this is a way to segue into the other kind of major idea of this of this game which is that this game might not be what we think it is and the outcomes might not be what they think that what we think they are how exciting Um, and unexpected yeah and and again like i wonder will they even go go so far as to keep playing with our relationship between us and like Avalanche as as a unit. I mean, they've introduced Avalanche as a larger mm-hmm. organization here, which I think is there's been like some spin-off series that that okay. uh, that dealt with that. But in Final Fantasy VII, Avalanche was your unit and here you're kind of the extremist version of this much larger organization. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in how they how they play around with that right. as well. And we see them. Mm-hmm. Like they actually intervene in in Jesse's chapter. Mm-hmm. They're not just like, oh yeah, HQ is like off in the Behind the the and then curtain. you meet the mayor who is like, one of few sort of yeah yeah um but yeah but the other big thing here is the the whispers the dementors mm-hmm. that we saw in the trailers yeah early we were wondering like what is this so I don't know do you want to give a quick gloss of what these whispers are well and to, why the, to yeah. the extent anyone can answer that question they yeah they look like dementors they show up and intervene at certain a mix of moments that seem really plot critical and some that are a little harder to parse. Uh, They intervene in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes they redirect your party. Sometimes they they intervene to save you or impair someone else. They just, they appear at cryptic times for what seems like entirely their own motives. Um, And Aerith describes them as uh, uh, protectors of the flow of destiny or something along those lines. Right. And by by the time you get to the end, you realize, and you've kind of been told that the purpose of the whispers is to ensure the integrity of the original timeline, like mm-hmm. the timeline that you played in the original Final Fantasy VII. Which in this game, they're calling fate. Right. So anytime anything might deviate from that timeline, the whispers will intervene and try to get the timeline back on track. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the end, you kind of defeat the whispers and you get some indication that things are not going to unfold as they did in the original. Yeah. Um. So I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the whispers in a bit, but first... Like you mentioned, that like the fact that it's kind of open ended at the end, that it ends with the unknown journey will continue, mm-hmm. that there's indication that maybe things won't unfold 
as they had in the past. That is incredibly exciting to me. It's wild that they set up a system where people who Final Fantasy VII is their favorite game are excitedly debating whether Aerith will die. Yes. You know what I mean? Like... Because so that's because I mean, that gets to something we touched on in the last episode when one of the things I love about GRPGs, especially classic ones, is these worlds that seem too big to contain them and that we there's no way we could know everything about this world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and all of the kind of rumors and speculation and secrets that would result from that. And one of the biggest that uh, that I remember was the rumor that you could revive Aerith somehow. Right. Um, like that is kind of legendary playground. Yeah, secret. that makes sense. Um and it's like this game, right? Even if she does die again, which again is it's bonkers that we're not that sure. We're not about. sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then even if she does, there's this kind of narrative veneer that will at least allow us to speculate again if there's a way to save her. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, like recapturing some of that. Yeah. And again, because that stuff's so hard now with internet and mm-hmm. data mining, et cetera, to leave anything unknown in mm-hmm. your game. But to be able to have that because you have these gaps between games and using that where there where actually there's nothing to data mine. This, yeah. <laughs> this game is just somebody's imagination right now that we can speculate now. That's really fun and kind of allows us to revisit the feelings that I had about RPGs when I was first getting into them. Yeah. Although I have to say I'm having some secondhand anxiety watching some people get so deep into the speculation about what this all means. Um I think that there's some very elaborate and very fun fan theories out there. A lot of videos on YouTube. You can go fall down that rabbit hole, have a fun time. I think one of the things that I've learned from, you know, things like um, loving TV shows that have season over season where in the gaps between seasons, people would try to speculate like, okay, clearly they're going in this direction Mm -hmm. and this is what's really going on with this character or whatever. Uh, That ends in heartbreak almost always i think like one of the things i've come around to just generally as a as a lover of media is that um the the wit and attention and care given in even the most thoughtful of writers rooms is no match <laughs> for the power of an entire world of internet dorks especially in quarantine, <laughs> um, to dig through every granular thing and and ima- not imagine connections. Because I don't, I don't think there, it's wrong to do this kind of engagement with the text. But I think I would not be shocked if the real thing that's going on with the whispers in future games, it turns out, is either a much simpler, some will feel dumber version of what you know, the fan theories have posited or doesn't wrap up a bunch of stuff in a satisfying way. Like, I, I think there's like, oh, I'm I'm just feeling like so many people are getting so invested in being mm. so sure they know what is going on here. And like, it just does not work out like that usually. And there's, we, we're going to have so much time to fall down these rabbit holes and do this speculation. And I just, I don't, we'll see. I mean, one of the, the, the counterpoint to this fun speculation about what will happen with Aerith and, you know, people are already suggesting all kinds of different things. Like, will it be, you know, will Cloud have to be the one who kills her? Or like, she knows she's supposed to die. And so Sephiroth doesn't kill her, but she knows that, but she still has to get herself killed or kill herself. All this stuff is like, I am a, I hope they don't chicken out on her dying. That's something that I want. And I do think is uh, sort of a, an emotional core of this game. I'm dreading the idea 
because they 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 sort of flirt with having Barrett killed off instead in this mm-hmm. game. They have a moment when Sephiroth stabs. It's very much like the Aerith murder. Yeah, it's a little gotcha. Yeah, and you're like, what? But then also, really, that's when really the power of the whispers is mm-hmm. crystallized in this game. Yeah, because they bring him back to life. Yeah. Um. So I. I could be okay with so many different directions on this. I live in fear that it will be one of two things, one of which I think is pretty likely. One, I hope they're not just like, ooh, we'll kill Tifa instead mm-hmm. as just like the other girl. And But like it doesn't make sense for her characters. You can't to kill have her. That. She's too strong. Have you played as her? She'll kick their asses. Bitch, you know I played as Tifa. I, listen, this is... She's too, We're fans of Tifa in this house. Here's the thing. She's too fun to play as. They they won't kill her. <laughs> There's like mechanical reasons that you keep her alive. Unless like Ketchi somehow took up boxing. Oh my God. In this alternate timeline or whatever. Or like Yuffie. Oh. Because she's, but she's like, anyway. Okay. So, so one thing I'm dreading is that they'll be like, oh, we'll kill the other girl that you love. Don't do it, Square Enix. Don't you do it. Um, the other thing that I think is far more likely that I would be profoundly disappointed in is if they go the no, we can defy destiny and save her and it's the power of friendship and we come together and we defy our fate and and she is saved. Uh, that's weak shit to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I boy, is that tempting, I think, <laughs> for for writers. Yeah, I, I mean, the point is that right, the general uncertainty and tension is is great anyway yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um and hopefully there is some payoff i i am kind of all in on this theory that the sephiroth in this game is the advent children sephiroth from the future who has come back and i'm exhausted just hearing that (laughs) i i don't know do i have to play crisis core now do i have to go watch advent children i think they'll probably make it all understandable especially if all those timelines are changing like maybe playing crisis core if Zach is still alive, then you don't need like who cares? Like that's God. been a race. I don't know. But I think this idea of this villain coming back and knowing that that he has a vested interest in keeping Aerith alive and not letting like the most iconic video game moment of the mm-hmm. 90s happen because he knows <laughs> that actually killing her was his big air mm-hmm. because her spirit, I don't know what, what connected with the live stream and stopped Meteor from yeah. destroying the Earth. And that you as your, that your party has a vested interest in Earth dying. Yeah. I think that's a really fun dynamic. Right. Um, And having your party having to contend with that and Aerith probably knowing that, it, it does seem that she has a lot more foresight than um, any of the other characters that she might also know something about what, what is to happen. Yeah. Although I think that of, I'm, I'm, this is the least convincing part of this whole theory for me that Aerith already um is sort of on the same page about what has happened and what is going to happen. I, I'm still not convinced that the text supports her being quite as self-aware as she's, maybe Sephiroth. She's gaining awareness. I don't think she's from the future, but I think that the planet is speaking to her. Yeah, sure. She definitely clearly, as it evolves, is more uh, self-aware about what's going on. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I'm also I'm also unconvinced that we're done with the whispers. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, even 100%. though you kind of have this where you like kill this personification of fate or whatever at the end. Again, like, yeah, whatever. JRPG, JRPG shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I don't think they're they're gone. But yeah, I find myself shocked by how much I don't mind their inclusion. And I'm actually kind of excited about their inclusion. Mm. And the one thing. OK, so the one thing I hate and this is this is kind of a fan thing. There are all this all these readings of the whispers. Mm-hmm. 
of being the fans. <laughs> okay. Like, the whispers are the fans invested with keeping this text sacred and yeah. not allowing it to change. Yeah. Get over yourselves, fans. <laughs> it's like, on the one hand, you're like, the creators never listen to us. On the other hand, you're like, they're obsessed with us. They put this plot contrivance <laughs> in just because they're mad at us. And they're mad that we want this to stay sacred. But the thing is, I I really do think that these whispers are justified by the narrative in the world and are mm. going to make so much sense in the world. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't that it doesn't bother me. I'm actually I, I think that if you're if you're like if your reading of their inclusion is that the developers want to take a dig at the fans who want to keep this thing pure and that's all they're there for. Yeah, get over yourselves. Also, this is like, not that is not like not to be pro corporation here, <laughs> but I, I don't think there's like a multi million dollar dig at the fans. Yeah. Also, like that so overestimates. Uh, how much any community of fans has ever agreed on anything. <laughs> right. Like no one, no one hates each other and the <laughs> text that they love and everything in it and every other fan's opinions more than any committed fan <laughs> of any media property. Like, um, yeah, it, th- this would be a hilarious interpretation of what, of how a fan community mm-hmm. works if that were the case. But I also am not, I think that's, pretty weak. And if this does just turn into some kind of creator like trying to contend with the history of this game and like the status of this game or something like and if that? that's all this turns out to actually be you're going to go to the dregs of Kojima land <laughs> with the worst of Kojima I'm going to banish you there no more. <laughs> and you can go and put little clues on the back of boxes <laughs> like yeah. In, in eternity but i don't think that's i i think like kojima no more will impress us <laughs> you know what your faith in kojima was rewarded so here's, okay here's the thing here's when here's the moment when i'm like okay there's a plan mm-hmm. so when this game was officially announced like so last e3 when it's like they kind of debuted this game and really like let the people see it yeah and and it was revealed that the official name of this game was going to be final fantasy 7 remake i thought that was the stupidest thing in the world <laughs> right like, you're really gonna just call it that remake right and then the se- and it, it took me way too long to this game to like for it to click it's like oh like remakes the subtitle like, right it took me so like sephiroth is remaking yeah like that's actually like the thematic through line of this chapter mm-hmm. it's like oh you're not stupid <laughs> <laughs> what a treat <laughs> and then i felt stupid for not trusting no you're enough. always right to assume the stupidest possible. I'm like, you're not just lazy and just calling this like Final Fantasy remake. We're doing it again. And not even saying part one. Like, it's like, oh, like that's your subtitle and it makes perfect sense. And you figured out how to like make, right. like build the concept of remake into the fabric of what this game is doing thematically. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's good that's, work. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, maybe that's like really low expectations being surpassed. But at that moment, it's like, okay, I, I believe that there is a plan here. Right. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's like the funny spiritual cousin to like, they said the name of the game <laughs> when you're like, oh, this is that gesture like played out. Yeah. And if there is some kind of like um, metal level ruminations about what it means to be a remake, sure, as long as all of that also makes sense within the world as mm-hmm. as part of this plot, which so far I think it does. Yeah. Very happy with that. <laughs> <laughs>
we like to do whenever we play newer games, and we did this with Death Stranding, is to reflect on the past through the newer game, right? Mm-hmm. So with Death Stranding, we really thought about what did Death Stranding teach us about Metal Gear Solid. I think in this case, with Final Fantasy VII, the remake, we can think about what it taught us, not just about the original, but about JRPGs in general. Yeah. So what are some of these main takeaways, since we've been really thinking about JRPGs recently? Okay. So one of the things that Final Fantasy Remake does that I am not aware of another game doing is that the hard mode of this game, which I'm now playing on New Game Plus, is not... Bragging, becoming a real gamer. Yeah, you're supposed to encourage me. (laughs) I'm not playing it on hard mode. (sighs) You shouldn't. It's hard. (laughs) Um, It's not just more difficult. You can't use items at all. In battle, outside of battle, there's no items. Important things to know as a result of that. Um, You cannot recharge your MP. And so even though you think like, oh, okay, so we're only relying on magic. No, as a result of the of the constraint on item use, you are also rationing your magic to a profound degree. Mm. Um, Also, when you rest on benches or sleep or whatever in beds, which normally heals your HP and MP, it only heals your HP now. So literally the only ways to recover magic are uh, smashing cartons. And sometimes you find odd Mako shards that give you some regen. There's a couple of special abilities that you can absorb a proportion of MP. Sometimes when you finish a a mission or a side quest or whatever, it'll restore your MP, but not always. And I think Aerith has an ability called Soul Drain that also drains your MP, but I haven't got back to her yet, so I don't have that. It has changed how I play this game so much. Um, It's turned it into a fundamentally different thing, which is defensive and strategic and careful and punishes sloppiness immediately. Um, I've not, I'm having a new experience Mm. of a JRPG that I have not had before. And I think the biggest thing that this has taught me about JRPGs is for the first time, I think since I started playing JRPGs, magic feels special. Like Mm. when I actually go to deploy offensive magic, like I'm never doing it except on bosses. I'm I'm so thoughtful and so conservative about it. And it, it's an event when I actually do. Healing spells, you were relying so heavily on the ones that use your ATB mat, uh, meter instead of your, mm-hmm. your magic, which is, you know, prey and chakra and there's a couple. But it, it has reintroduced um, a sense that magic is something special in this world and that it's not just another thing that uh, you find on every street corner and you fire off a million of every battle. And that has changed how the world world feels like mm. um, getting those those uh, taking those hits from from bad guys feels different. Um, Have you ever felt this in a JRPG before? Because no. you've definitely played a bunch where they tell you that magic is special. No, but you never felt it. Your guys always have it. Mm. You always have mages on your team mm. who are just like, pew, 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 where their whole thing is is insane cures and like crazy offensive stuff you feel fragile and you know when you're when you're storming into a shinra hotbed i feel so much more like just a person i don't feel like a super powered god who's gonna nuke all these people with like three you know electrocute spells that also spread to nearby god you know like i I, I feel re-embodied as the character, as just a person. So so this, so this here's something else. Um, what do you feel about summons in this game? 
Mm-hmm. And, and this is an approach they also took with 15, where summons aren't just something that you can summon whenever you want. Yeah. That they will come, I guess, kind of haphazardly, like kind of randomly. Yeah. It, it seems to be pretty arbitrary when they when they show up to yeah. help you. Yeah. Like they'll definitely, they're almost definitely appear if you're in a major fight, like yeah. a boss fight or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you feel about this new approach to summons in the Final Fantasy series? I love it. Yeah. They feel like, so remember when we talked about with um, In Shadow of the Colossus about Agro feeling like an entity that isn't 100% mm-hmm. under your control? Um, the summons in this game feel like you are not their master. Mm-hmm. They offer when they are willing to come help you in battle and you have the choice to call them and you can give instructions to them to like use certain attacks. Like you can control them a bit, but they also will just fight like autonomously. Um, They feel they feel like extra powerful things that you are lucky to have on your side. I like I agree, which now that you're saying this just makes it all the weirder that they just exist in Chadley's virtual world. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like Digimon or something. Yeah. Oh, I got these gods. You want to fight these gods? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like it would be it would, and maybe I don't know if they'll do this in the future games, but it'd be cool. Like if you could kind of in how you do in some other Final Fantasy games where you have to go encounter them kind of in the wild. Yeah. And then you get them on your side there. Win them over. Or yeah. Yeah. And then you can. But you can't you still can't deploy them whenever you want. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love this approach to them. Um, I still... that's Yeah, like in 15, that's like... Magic didn't feel special in 15, but 15 was the first time that summons felt really special. True. Usually, like in, in some of the older ones, like in 8, some were pretty hard to get. And, and in 10 as well, like you'd have to kind of do special side quests and they'd be pretty difficult to get mm-hmm. certain ones. Uh, and those always felt a little bit more special because you remembered yeah. what you had to go through to get them. Yeah. But here, um, 15 and then in this one, yeah, they really do feel... I think as they're supposed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it just has helped clarify me for me that um, it would be really great to see more JRPGs move either in the direction of an urban fantasy kind of idea of mundane magic, mm. where like, if everyone has, if pretty much anyone can learn Cure, then all kinds of just citizens in this world should be able to use this mm. magic mm-hmm. in mundane everyday ways. So I think it's made me appreciate that I, I wish more JRPGs either had that level of um, mundaneness of magic. Sounds like you want a Harry Potter or RPG. I don't. Or whatever. It could be good. <laughs> it could be good. Um, or went in this direction where they truly let you feel um, the scarcity and the impact of big and special magics and powers that come to you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's one of my that's one of my big reflections on JRPGs. Um, what did this make you think about? I've got one that's um, pretty basic, but has become pretty important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is confirmed. Chapter breaks have no place in JRPGs. <laughs> I hated it. Every time it would show me what chapter I was in or show me that the chapter has ended. I hated it. These Even are not- when you were just like clearly transitioning between two spaces and it would be like, oh, next chapter. Yeah, I, I, I hated it. These are not novels. I want to feel like I'm in one coherent world and not playing like discrete parts that have clear beginnings and ends, even though they do. Yeah. I don't want to be reminded of that. I want to feel like this world is one whole thing. Like you don't mind the structure. You just don't want it named or announced. Yeah. I don't want to be reminded of the structure and told that I'm playing in a finite number of chunks. Okay. I want this world to feel alive and something that I can inhabit, Mm -hmm. not something that I'm meant to to walk through in this very prescribed... um, Like authored way, kind of? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It just, I don't know. It just rubbed me the wrong way every time I saw that hmm. I was in a chapter. Hmm. It's and it's such a basic, just take it out. I hate, okay. I did not. That was like the one thing that every time I was like, oh, it just made the game feel so much more linear than it needed to. Sure. It's just like, yeah, like we talked about this before. Like, yes, games are authored. Even the most nonlinear games, developers have done so much to try to get you to walk through it and move through it yeah. in a specific way. Yeah. But so many developers also put so much energy into building the illusion of choice and the mm-hmm. illusion of nonlinearity. Love to be fooled. Yeah, to make you inhabit that world. And this is just one of those things that's like, it's so easy to just not include that. <laughs> like, you don't even have to try and automatically I'll feel more part of this world. Yeah, that's really fair. Do you have another? Yeah, I think I do. So I've been thinking about how one of the strengths of uh, of Remake are um, the moments when it leans into its specific JRPG and Final Fantasy heritage. Mm. And I think this has become more important to me as more and more like general RPG elements show up in more and more games. It feels more special to have those have those sort of signature elements of that that classic JRPG feeling. And I, you know, this is tinged by nostalgia 100%, but this is how I feel. Um, I think this game is at its strongest when it leans into uh, some of the the funny tone things that you get in JRPGs that you often don't get in Western RPGs into a lot of the playing with scale that happens so much more in a different way into these uh, particular fantasy elements, even into things like um, when we're going to see sort of the signature enemies of Final Fantasy Mm -hmm. or... You know... We're going to see a Marlboro one day. I'm so excited for what are they going to do with the Marlboro? Yeah, I, and I talked before about how how much I feel like they nailed that in 15 and making that feel special. I think, and and as I got thinking about this, I think this is one of the reasons why I ended up loving Persona 5 so much, even though I objectively think that game is like vastly overrated, but I- it, Whoa, whoa. Yeah, it's-, it's This, I did not, okay. Okay, <laughs> I do think this, uh, largely as a result of weird localization decisions that I think are fun to- are, in many ways, fatal flaws for the game. I still had a great time playing it. We'll probably replay it at some point for all hundred hours. But I think, I think in some ways it feels refreshing as so many elements of especially Western RPGs bleed, sort of bleed out everywhere that we have these um, things like this update of the turn-based battle system. These like, these things that are defining of um, this genre feel almost fresh and welcome again the more the game leans into them. So this is very close to my thing that I learned about this oh. game, which is that this is the game that has confirmed to me that JRPGs are not archaic. They're incredibly yeah, relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The things that make them differ from action games or Western RPGs are 100% worth preserving. Mm-hmm. That this is a fundamentally different genre and it needs to stay that way. And I really hope it stays that way. And that there are pleasures that you get from a JRPG that you can't get anywhere else. Absolutely. And yeah, like, again, like the battle system reminded me of this, like just having it so grounded in its turn-based history made me feel so much more connected to those characters. Unlike other games where you have a party and everybody's kind of operating in real time, Mm -hmm. I kind of felt like I knew what everybody was doing on the battlefield at every moment. I had such a more vivid understanding of the battle unfolding. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the the JRPG specific lineage. Yeah. Similarly, um, I just want to be told a story. I'm so happy that 
I can't really make choices for my party. Yes. I'm so happy that I don't need to make choices for the protagonist. Yeah. I just want to see the story unfold. Yeah, and it, it kind of makes me sad to think of a future where so many games have kind of taken RPG elements that the barriers between the genres just start to dissolve. Yeah. And yeah, there's something about traditional JRPGs, even if it's in this really glossy blockbuster mm -hmm. form that in a lot of ways tries to hide the fact that it's deep down yeah. still your classic JRPG. Even if it's in that form, we still need that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess before we finish and before we wrap up, are there any concerns you have moving into the future? Um, I think we've touched on a few of them already because we it is so uncertain where the Final Fantasy VII remake series now is going. But is there anything that jumps out at you um, that you haven't already mentioned that maybe you're worried about or that you're you're going to be looking out for moving yeah, forward? Yeah, I've talked about fan theories. That's one that this that somehow, even though they pulled it out of the hat with this one, that the next mm -hmm. iterations will sort of collapse under the weight of fan expectations um, for it. I honestly, my biggest anxiety for the next ones are just that they get done. <laughs> No, I, I don't mean I don't mean this glibly. I mean, like, look, I listened to the the wailing cries of the Kingdom Hearts nerds for so long. Is that what you're calling me? Yes. <laughs> okay. um, I I know that this is a company that takes its time, usually, and cares about this franchise and also is willing to go a long time between games and is willing to sometimes make hard decisions about uh, scrapping big elements and, and starting over. And it's not that I think they're, I don't know. I, we don't even know how many parts this is going to be. We don't know if they know how many parts this is going to be. Like, I, I hope there's a roadmap and I hope that's, I want this to be a six to eight year journey, not a 15 to 20 year journey. Well, I just, uh, we don't know what is the world going to be in 15 years. Like I truly, I, I dread the idea that uh, something fundamental will change that will make hmm. the ending of these games not possible before they're done. This game has sold incredibly well. We just have to put our faith in the shareholders that they will pressure <sighs> the company to move forward. Great. Because as we've learned in this game, capitalism... <laughs> Is what sustains us all. Yes. Um, uh, I hope they suck that creative <laughs> mako out of all of the development team. Yeah, I, I think the thing that I'm worried about is something I mentioned earlier and is, is kind of related. I, I, I'm worried that right, I love this game. I love what they did with Midgar. I'm worried that moving forward as they move out into this into the open world of the rest of the game, mm -hmm. that they won't be able to maintain this scale. Right. I mean, Midgar is one of the bigger locations, mm -hmm. but if they don't do something almost equally grand with like the golden saucer. Yeah. Will that just feel yeah. so minor? Yeah. And can they do this with all of the locations? Can they actually recreate the experience of a vastness in the open world mm -hmm. just with the resources they have? I don't know if they can do that, if they have the time to do that. Yeah. And then similarly, can they actually create the sense of growth with the characters and, and can you still feel your character growing even though you already have all of your top tier elemental spells? Yeah. And I think... They did such a good job in so many beats with characterization in this, like characters grow in this. Mm -hmm. Like I, we got a satisfying art, like cloud changes so much over the course of this. One of the first things, 
one of the first moments that I love is um, on the first bombing mission when they don't know each other yet, Cloud and Barrett being in an elevator after they've set the bomb and Barrett's going, come on, come on. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of a hothead. And he turns around and Cloud's just standing peacefully with his arms mm-hmm. crossed, his head down. And you see Barrett respond to that and kind of start to try to unclench and like open his closed fit. Like it's just, there's no dialogue. It's just like, it's a moment of these of these two characters seeing each other and having a response to each other that begins to change one of, mm-hmm. at least one of them. And I loved that I really felt cloud changing over the course of this but i don't want that to be done like i want to continue to have that and we also like and you don't want to start from nothing again like yeah and and that's the thing like i think my worry is will there be diminishing returns if every game has to have a full arc yeah kind of narratively and systems wise yep and by the time you get to like the third or the sixth or whatever however many they're going to be is it just going to feel mm-hmm. old by then mm-hmm. yeah so that's that's the only thing that that i'm worried about but uh i have more hope and faith in this series than mm-hmm. i expected to at this point yeah i agree i i like this so much more than i thought i would and i thought i would like it mm-hmm. so we know you like this but did you end up giving this one a score i did okay <laughs> <laughs> okay for giving me big tech fantasy stories about a city plus 20. For letting me look at the plate to my heart's content plus 6. For making it easy to truly use everyone in your party plus 18. For a revitalized score that is absolutely everything we could ever ask for plus 25. For not at all understanding how frightening it actually is when the girls are gassed at Corneo's mansion minus 15. For not understanding the way it's even more dangerous for Cloud given the history of trans misogyny and gay panic minus 10 more. For the goofy-ass Hellhouse fight, plus 10. For letting non-party characters be vibrant and grounded, plus 12. For letting the party characters feel like actual people, mostly, plus 20. For not always understanding its own stakes, minus 8. For letting me keep the buster sword, spiritually if not factually, plus 6. For the surprising Sephiroth conceit that makes this so much more than just a rehash, plus 13. For being way more cool about the teacher who's a sexy dancer by night than any actual school board, plus 3. And for its undeniable bloat, minus zero. Who cares? <laughs> for a total score of a hundred. Oh, that's a that's a pretty good score. Well, yeah. Um, in your score though, you brought up the your feelings about the Corneo Mansion scene, and that's not something we talked about. Yeah. Um, in the lead up, and I don't want to really treat that flippantly. So I wonder if yeah, you have yeah. if you have anything else to say about that here. Yeah, I, I've I've shied away from bringing this up because I think it, uh. There's so much to say about this scene and about how queerness plays out in this game. And I don't feel equipped or like really will. I don't think it's within the scope of this podcast really to get into that. But the the shortest version I can offer, because this was really something that impacted how I feel about this game. Um, that I think the game does not have properly calibrated how scary of a scene that is for lots of people. Mm. So I think I'm talking about the scene where Cloud, Tifa and Aerith are in Corneo's mansion and they get gassed and and they pass out. Um, So I think that given the environment of sexual menace and mortal violence that is created around Corneo and the mansion, like it's, it's more than implied that the person who, like women who go into that mansion probably get sexually abused and then murdered most likely uh, on some kind of timeline. And I think the game thinks that what it's doing here is just giving you one of those scenes where 
your heroes are in the bad guy's lair and they get, you know, shot with a tranquilizer dart or something and they they pass out and they're going to wake up in some kind of predicament. I think if you are someone who has lived with the threat of sexual violence in your life, um, that is not how this feels. This feels terrifyingly close to real experiences of sexual violence. This is like, this is not just, oh no, what's going to happen? This is like, I was emotionally preparing myself for like, coming to from a a gross case of of like sexual violence and i the game has set that up but i don't know how i don't know that that's the reaction that it think knows that it's inspiring yeah i'd say it almost definitely doesn't right um i think the game thinks that it's giving you a series of empowering moments right Right. That almost work as a corrective to how that played out in the original, especially with the cloud's transformation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, That's what I think the game thinks it's doing. But Well, and so that's why the cloud stuff is actually worse for me in this scene. Because so as you've said, cloud's transformation in this is presented as if it's sort of a character transformation. And it's a little bit liberating for him. Even it just brings him, you know. And so I think it's hard for me not to read this moment through the lens of transmisogyny and through my knowledge of what happens so often in the real world when uh, cis men think that they're having sex with or assaulting um, their perception of what a woman is and it turns out that the body in front of them is different from that, has a penis or whatever. And there's horrific violence that happens in those cases. And I mean, maybe if if Cloud was fully awake when whatever that was mm-hmm. happened, you know, Cloud is like superhuman essentially and would have probably cut them all down simply. And maybe that would feel good somehow. But I, I, I just it like it gave me the feeling in my body that I feel when something very, very wrong, more than just violent is like imminent. Um, and. So that that's a hard that's a hard moment for me because I think uh, you both are touching stuff in a lot of your audience. That I don't think you're meaning to, and that sucks. And also, like the game has lost is not doing this on like the game's lost control of its impact at that moment. I think right, and I think we're going to see this with at least one other game that we're going to be playing shortly, or at least a series that we'll be playing shortly where. A game at least convinces itself that it's that it's working within a purely fictional world where there's no permeability mm-hmm. with the real world and that people can kind of keep out what they know happens in the real world from yeah. the game world. And I think that's what this game's trying to do. And yeah, it's yeah. probably it's it, that's going to be impossible for a lot of people. And instead, for a moment, I have to feel like Cloud's like journey of queerish liberation for whatever that's worth is about to end in like transmisogynist violence, which like that that is awful. <laughs> That's like really, really terrible. And that's not what happens. And we get a good ending. And there's so much to like about about this game. It just there's a whole world of stuff. And I would encourage people to read specifically queer authors' writing about this because there's been there's been so much great stuff said about it. Uh, more than we're gonna get to in this dumb podcast about uh games that I haven't played before. Um so I think we should probably wrap it up there. Um, well, on that cheery note, thank you everyone for listening. As always, if you have enjoyed this podcast, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Uh, you could also tell a friend. We really appreciate that. 
Um, if you want more information about us or to see show notes, episode notes, uh, media that we've referred to, uh, you can visit us at neverwasagamer.com or follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah, thank you so, so much for listening. And we'll see you next time when Michelle tries to settle an age-old question. What's better, fireballs or a spear attached to a chain that may or may not emerge out of a gross hole in your palm? <sighs> I know this one. It's all part of her path to becoming a gamer.